The Tom Woods Show, episode 1551. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum, which I helped create, gives parents their mental health back and students a top-notch education. In addition to the traditional subjects, how about two years' worth of business, as well as a course on personal finance for teens, a course on public speaking, the kinds of stuff nobody learns anywhere, but which will give your students a major leg up. Plus, through my link only, get $160 worth of free bonuses when you join. That link is ronpaulhomeschool.com. Everybody, Tom Woods here. I am delighted to welcome you to Gene Epstein Week. I've done a number of these weeks with people in the past, to Brian McClanahan, Michael Malice, Dave Smith, others. And this time it's Gene Epstein. Now, Gene, as many of you know, served for many years as economics and book review editor at Barron's. He's had quite an illustrious career. He knows everybody. He's lectured on everything, spoken everywhere. And I think even now, he just turned 75. I think now, I think he's better known than ever. I think he has more fans than ever. And I think a lot of us are realizing we should have, we should have been following Gene Epstein more. I think a lot of us will agree that now that we know how great he is, why did we not know more about him? Now, I've been following him for a long time because he and I first met at Freedom Fest in Las Vegas. We did a two-on-two debate on the Federal Reserve. And maybe you folks have heard the story, but why not? I'm going to repeat it anyway. I didn't know Gene that well. I mean, we'd corresponded a bit. Maybe we met once or twice. But but in terms of actually spending real time with him, that didn't happen until this debate. And we'd been paired up at this debate. And I remember thinking, well, he writes for an establishment financial publication. So I'm going to have to do the heavy lifting in terms of the radicalism here. Then it came time for Gene's opening statement. And he just burned that place to the ground. It was unbelievable. I thought, okay, I guess we're, we're 50-50 partners on this one. So I just loved the guy from that moment. And I thought there's going to be plenty to talk about in a Gene Epstein week. So we're going to start off a little bit on the personal side of this week with Gene's personal story, which is an interesting one. It's a darn interesting one because his mother was actually a card-carrying communist. So there's a lot to talk about here, and we're going to get into that right now. Gene, welcome. Oh, hang on a minute, Gene. Wait, wait, wait hang on just a minute. Before I bring Gene on, I should warn you there is a possibility, given the subject matter here, that let's just say adult themes could be raised. And now people are wondering what on earth is Woods talking about? But I do want you to know that. So if you have little ears in the car, there may be no bad language, but there could be some themes raised that you're not yet prepared to discuss with them. So just bear that in mind. And now let me welcome Gene. Gene, I'm so glad to have you. Welcome. Well, uh, Tom, uh, I'm very uh, proud to have a week named after me on the Tom Woods Show. And I think you've done it for three others. Uh, two of them were also Ashkenazi Jews, I think, uh, Michael Malice and Dave Smith. And then the great historian. Is, is this, this your fourth uh, devoted week, Tom? I'm trying to remember. I, I did yeah. do a Scott Horton week also. Oh, of course. Of course. <clears throat> How could I forget that? Yeah. Absolutely. The great Scott Horton, who is the 21st century's answer, the libertarian answer to Noam Chomsky. 
And uh, so, uh, so I am so honored uh, to be a part of that illustrious company. Well, it's very good of you to say. I mean, really, it's just a lot of unpaid labor when you get right oh, down to it. There you go. <laughs> and then, and and then, uh, and then the the tribute to Tom Woods that uh, that I do have to file at the end of uh, 2019. What you started uh, this five days a week right from the get go, isn't that right, Tom? That is right. Post- Yep. And that and that was uh, how many years ago? Six Again, years now? ago. Six years ago, and uh, my son Jim, uh, who has been on your show, who is actually a rising star at uh, the Reason Foundation, expressed personal admiration for you because he said, you know, the most ecumenical podcast out there is the Tom Woods show. And uh, I give Tom a lot of credit for that. I said, well, okay, I give Tom a lot of credit for that as well, personally, because that obviously defines him as a person. But just the dynamic is that if you're going to fill content five days a week, you have to throw a broad net. That it's unavoidable. Right. Unless Tom, unless Tom wants to keep recycling the same fifteen people, which and of course uh, occasionally he gives me a little bit more attention than others, and, and Michael Malice. But he's got to be out there uh, looking for talent, and so you know we could do parodies of Tom Woods. You know, Tom Woods would have Benito Mussolini on. So, Benito, I disagree with about most things, but I invited you on the show to discuss the libertarian element. Tom is going to reach out to almost anybody uh, if you want to be on the Tom Woods show. I think. No matter who you are, I think you can probably get on as long as you tell Tom, I can speak about something, something of interest to libertarians. So that is, uh, you have a, a, a right to be very proud of that fact, Tom. And so, again, that's one of the reasons why I'm honored to be on your show once again. Well, I'm glad you say that, Gene, because yeah. I think that's something that only a select few have even noticed about the yes. Tom Woods show. Really? Well, it's it's just oh, interesting, interesting that that it's that they that they haven't noticed almost. Well, I think partly it's that, yeah. I think partly yeah. it's that not everybody knows yeah. as well as you and I do all the you know the different factions and rivalries and whatever. Oh, and yeah. and the Tom Woods show transcends them all, as you're trying to say, because well, I right. I genuinely yeah. I want to learn from everybody who has something to teach me who yeah. uh, hasn't called me a name. I mean, those well, are my two quali- <laughs> qualifications. <laughs> and and, and I, I, don't, I don't even know about the second one, Tom. I just, I just wonder. Yeah, if, saying, if they're I, really smart <laughs> and they've called me a name, I still I have to think, well, yeah, all right, maybe I'll do it. <laughs> no, I'll do it, I'll do it for the good of the listeners. And indeed, uh, the factionalism is unfortunate. And, and here's where, of course, I, I, I talk about the Epstein nexus. And uh, and the Epstein nexus is, I uh, use the word Epstein because I am now getting, you know, from the great self-appointed comedians on social media, I get about two jokes a week on my cousin Jeffrey and uh, did I kill anybody or did I kill myself? And so, uh, you know, that's that that's been a little bit unsettling, but uh, I, I don't really mind it. I guess my the, my free market uh, cousins Alex Epstein and Richard Epstein, who are both free market, maybe they get the same jokes. But the Epstein nexus that I speak of is indeed that my son Jim, who's in his early 40s, uh, because I, I stun myself when I say that, he was raised on Rothbard, so to speak, raised. Uh, when he graduated from Wesleyan, he was not really a libertarian. 
And I said, please read Noam Chomsky and, and Murray Rothbard. Well, maybe I said that even before he graduated. Anyway, so he came back to me, he said, Dad, he said, Dad, one out of two ain't bad. Chomsky doesn't turn me on, but Rothbard certainly does. And so we have Epstein Peer and Feast. We have the distinction of having having said, how did we get converted to libertarianism? Well, by one guy. That was by Rothbard. And then Jim went on to become uh, a researcher at Reason. He's now been there for 12 years. And uh, so he believes in reaching out. In my case as well, um, I was at Barron's for a quarter of a century, and I was just grateful for the fact that there were enormous number of people I could call on at the Mises Institute, at the Cato Institute, at Reason. I'm proud of the fact that, of course, I was behind enemy lines, so to speak, uh, as book review editor. I published book reviews by by Walter Block and Bob Murphy. And so my point is that that we can help with uh, with this uh, reaching out and with this ecumenism and not make too much out of the differences that divide us. Uh, I only draw the line, I should emphasize, on foreign policy. And that's where you and I have a lot of free market fellow travelers, Tom, and you've had many of them on the show. You've wanted to have Thomas Sowell on, who, who has done great work on the free market, but clearly is not a libertarian in that strict sense. So I do define libertarianism, I believe, fairly rigorously. So I insist on that. But I do believe that there are libertarians at Cato Institute, the libertarians at Reason, there are libertarians at the Independent Institute and at the Mises Institute. And they come in with different emphasis and uh, they teach me different things. And you've had a whole assortment of those people on your show. And again, I congratulate you for that. But I'm, I'm only saying that the Epstein Nexus is going to continue to endorse this point that the Tom Woods show is an ecumenical place to go to and that uh, by by and large uh, we should emphasize what we have in common and augment each other rather than have petty squabbles. One more quick thing before we actually yeah. dive into our sure. subject matter and that sure. involves your son Jim. Yeah. And I played for the audience in your last time you were on the program the the audio of the the little video I sent for your 75th oh, yes. birthday party. <laughs> Yes. Uh, which was recorded at the Vienna airport and it took some, you know, poke fun at, at Gene, but in a, from the position of somebody who, who thinks very highly of you and, yes. uh, you know, holds you in very high regard. So anyway, I sent that to Jim. This yes. was all being done behind your back, of course. Yeah. And uh, he said, he said, this is part of for the email. He said, <laughs> he said thanks, Tom. Because, because one of the things I pointed out was how you will point out to Bob or to me any yeah. of the errors we yeah. might have made on the I'm show. Like sometimes, yeah, and sometimes they might be very narrow or whatever. So, okay. so Jim says, he, he says, your remarks are spot on, particularly <laughs> regarding his let nothing go unmentioned style of criticism. <laughs> I have no idea how I survived my childhood. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, that's fair enough, Tom. And, and look, I'm proud of the fact that, that Jim not only survived his childhood, he has a good 20-year head start on me because, as you know, I came to my libertarianism late, relatively late in my life in my late 20s. And of course, uh, anytime my son Jim is, is mentioned, um, I burst with that word called nachus. Nachus, you have to learn how to pronounce it with a ch, and uh, that's the Yiddish word, mainly means the pride and pleasure you take in your children. And I know that you, Tom, of course, know what Nachus is all about with those five daughters whom you occasionally blame for the fact that you're not the 21st century answer to Murray Rothbard. But on the other <laughs> hand... <laughs> 
When in doubt, blame the kids, Tom. I know, but uh, <laughs> who knows? Who knows what Regina had? Your old is that she's she's your oldest, Regina. She is, but yeah. She has, what she has to say about that. So indeed, uh, all fair. And and by the way, I love those jokes. I love I love the way you made fun of me. And uh, and it does apply a little bit to the next five days. As you said, I asked Gene a question and and then uh, I can go uh, downstairs, make a sandwich, vacuum the rugs, come back upstairs. <laughs> and then Gene is saying, now to get to the question. So, okay, <laughs> I went, but, but what that means to me, Tom, is that I occasionally filibuster my interviewers, you know, and uh, and and so I'm gonna I'm gonna guard against doing that. I'm I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna make sure you're not intimidated by a guy who's got so many years on you like I have, Tom, and uh, make sure that you get a word in in what transpires over the next five days. All right, so that, that's so gonna be up. my. That's going to be my aim as well. So, yeah, sure. all right. So, actually, that is a pretty good uh, segue into the yeah. topic of our first yeah, episode. Because yeah. the topic of the first episode, Gene, is you. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. we're going to talk about where Gene Epstein came from. And I yeah. mean, intellectually, uh, yeah. but in terms of your intellectual development yeah. and, and, and some episodes in your life. Yeah. Because you. I mean, I had the most boring conversion. Yeah. I I hate the word conversion story because this is not a religion. But yeah. still, but you know what I mean. I mean, what what other word are we going to use? Yeah. Uh, compared to yours, mine is like nothing. You've, you've got a really interesting one. And Bob yeah. Murphy started to get to, uh, yeah. at some of it yeah. in an episode he did with you. Yeah. And I want to pick up on that and, and go a bit farther. So yeah. let's start from the very beginning. Gene Epstein was born where? Born in New York City? Born in New York City, and the point I want to pursue uh, is this, that what I'm about to talk about is, of course, going to relate to the question you've raised, which is uh, how does somebody raised in Bolshevism, as I was, mommy was a commie, uh, come to become a, a libertarian? And of course, there will be uh, an unending mystery in that, because in my debate with Richard Wolff, I characterized myself as a bleeding heart, a freedom-loving capitalist. And uh, and yet some of it relates to the personal, because what also happened when I was recently on Dave Smith's show was that I, I listened to it just this morning and I'm wondering, why did I bring that up? It sort of came up. Dave and I were talking about communism and Bolshevism. And I somehow had to tell Dave the story about how my mother lost custody of me and my brother because my father was able to expose the fact that she was a member of the Communist Party, or had been actually, she quit the Communist Party because she was trying to get custody of me and my brother, and she realized that being a CP member was not exactly good for her chances. He was able to prove that she had been a member of the Communist Party, card-carrying member, and secondly, that she had been having affairs with black guys in the party, and this was in the early 1950s. And so I told this story, and then it provoked a lot of questions from people, uh, mainly on, on Dave Smith's part of the problem, Facebook. And so those things came up. So I, I'm going to I'm going to go into that a little bit in, in order to uh, just uh, answer the questions that did come up. And they do relate to politics, but I guess they also relate to me personally. But further, I want to frame it by saying something else. Because I look, look, Tom. I know you. Uh, you spoke about certain painful things in your own youth, uh, bullied by somebody, and then you talked about how it was sort of cleansing to meet that same person. I believe you said at a reunion and sort of, uh, sort of yeah. come to terms with them. Yeah. And so all, all of that does happen to us. But I want to frame it by saying that I did indeed think of myself as having the mark of Cain. 
so to speak, the mark of Cain on me for the rather crazy childhood I had. It was especially crazy because this happened in the 1950s. But uh, then once I was in college, and uh, you know, you might even say the, the best sort of education I got out of college was all of the times I'd spent staying up until four in the morning, trading stories with women and men, both young guys and, and young women, about our backgrounds and what we had gone through. And then I came to realize that uh, I'm not so special. Obviously, some of the circumstances of my background are special, but everybody has had his issues and that I'm not such an outlier. And uh, and that, of course, that that probably cleansed me a little bit of self-pity about my background. But getting to the point about, about how I was born, you know, I, I, I'm going to dramatically characterize it as sort of like the stuff of myth and the Bible, that there's sort of like a tradition that people who, do, who go on to do great things, not that I actually did great things in life, but when you go on to do great things, you often have a very odd way of coming into the world. And this was at a time in, uh, in 1944 when my father was already planning to divorce my mother. That I know because I did a deep dive into the documents. I know a lot about what really went on. And he was already having an active affair with a woman he was going to marry and replace my mother with. And then on top of everything else, this woman had been married to my mother's brother. She had been married to my mother's brother. She had been my mother's sister-in-law, and she became my stepmother. So the odd thing is that he already, uh, they already had a son, my older brother, born in 1941. And my father, uh, I know my, my brother was born in September of 41, and I know that my father tried to enlist in the Army. Pearl Harbor happened uh, in, uh, in December of 41, so it must have been 42. He, like so many men, he was trying to get away from his family. He tried to enlist in, in the war, even though he would have had an exemption by virtue of being a father uh, at that time. But he didn't get in. Uh, he, he was not admitted uh, to the Army. I don't know what else he could have done, but that's because he was nearsighted in a war glasses. I was always interested in that because I know that during the Vietnam War, which relates to, to my own background, glasses didn't help you at all. You know, they, you just carried a second pair of glasses if you were going to be a soldier. But he couldn't get into the army. And he got a job with the Internal Revenue Service during World War II. And he had a great time philandering. And then, of course, and then he fell in love with his sister-in-law. And then, and then, why, how could I possibly be conceived? Why, why was he still having sexual relations with a woman he was going to leave? That's a mystery. And then, in fact, this was uh, my conception. Now, this, this is going to get maybe, maybe some people want a sense of the next part of it. My, my conception was with protected sex. Uh, but my mother wanted to have a child and took out the diaphragm, as she told me. And I was conceived. And then my mother told me this story that she told my father that she was pregnant again. And according to her, my father told her to have an abortion. Uh, and this ironically, so to speak, ironically, wasn't true. It wasn't until uh, my mother told me this story when I was a kid that my father wanted her to have an abortion when she got pregnant with me. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s that my mother admitted that that's not the way it happened at all. That my father's immediate reaction was, let's tell everybody we planned it. 
let's tell everybody we planned it. But my, my only point is that I look back on the crazy irony. Why? How, how could I come in? I wouldn't have not have been born into this world if my father had gotten into the army. And certainly, certainly, if this weren't a very early period, the 1940s and then the 1950s, when divorce was absolutely taboo, absolutely taboo among Jewish people. Uh, if you were unhappy with your spouse, I happen to know my both my grandparents on both sides. I think they they would have gotten divorced on both sides had it been the 1960s or 70s. But you don't get divorced, and my my father was struggling with it, and so I think that's part of the reason why I got conceived. But to get to the sort of anger and craziness that turbocharged me and the association I had with my mother's communism is that. My mother became a victim. My father, again, was able uh, to prove that she had been a card-carrying communist, that she she started to have affairs by the uh, by like 1950, and late 1940s. My father had been philandering for 10 years. It's the old double standard. A woman who has affairs is clearly a tramp. The man can philander. So and and indeed she imbued me with of course with the with the idea that of course black people, Negroes as they were called in those days, were uh, were downtrodden and the communist party was protecting them. And so my father was able to, so to speak, kidnap us when my brother, I was seven years old and my brother was 10. This was in 1952. And he brought about a reign of terror in my mother and my mother fought back. For the next, it was, uh, let's see, it started when I was seven, so it went on for about four years. There were three custody trials and three divorce trials. And uh, they kept getting appealed. My mother was fighting. She was able to get communist lawyers to help her. Uh, and uh, I appeared on the witness stand at one point uh, uh, to uh, testify and to answer, get, to get this, I'm 11 years old and my mother and father are sitting in the same room together and I'm asked, which one do I prefer to live with? Well, Hi. you know, yeah, you know, and 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 I and I think back on the lunacy of the courts in those days. Do they think that an eleven-year-old is going to tell the truth about who he wants to live and what he wants to do? Well, ironically, I actually preferred my father at that point because my mother was so impossible to be to be around. Well, I'm getting into the more than part of it, but but I want to back up and say this then colored all of my thinking. I, I think I told the story to Bob that when I was, I, I think back on sitting in a classroom which had to have been in the fall of 1952, because that's when the 52 presidential election was about to come up, we're reading the junior review, as they were called, and the headline said, one of these two men is gonna be the next president of the United States, Adlai Stevenson or Dwight D. Eisenhower. I'm, I'm thinking, how could I be so smug and not believe what these people are telling me? Uh, I knew I knew that my mother's candidate was going to be the next president of the United States and that these two losers were not going to make it. That would be Vincent Hallinan, who was then the Communist Party candidate. And, and uh, I, I just thought that my mother is obviously going to back a winner. And uh, it was only only about a few weeks later that I asked my mother about whether she expects him to win. And I was surprised to learn 
that she didn't expect her candidate to win. And sort of that, and then on top of everything else, this is before my father took us away, on top of everything else, when I saw what a victim my mother was, my father at that point had started an accounting firm. He'd been a poor kid from the Lower East Side, son of immigrants, and he, he went on to make millions on that in, in business. He had started an accounting firm, he had a lot of money, and so he brought a reign of terror on her and uh, to get custody uh, of his sons. And so I associated, uh, so the whole world was then the capitalists preying on the communists. Uh, I told, uh, I mean, Bob and I were trading stories about the teams that lose, you know, root for a losing team. I learned how to root for losing teams because my side always lost. But on top of everything else, I saw the world in capitalist and communist colors, namely that the, the Giants and the Dodgers always lost to the Yankees. The Yankees, my brother told me, would not allow blacks on the team. I gather historically it is true that they were late to the, you know, the Jackie Robinson-related uh, integration of the major leagues. And so they were not only the Yankees were not only the team that always won. Those who know their baseball history know that they won five five World Series in a row from 47 to 52. And then they think they won a few others later on. But they were the racist team. So all of the world was colored in that way. And so uh, I, I identified with my mother. Now, the mystery really is that. Uh, and now I want to mention, Tom, uh, your, uh, <laughs> your conversation with, with Lou Rockwell recently fascinated me. I, I forgive the great Lou Rockwell for saying libertarians who come from the right are just much better. They're, they're the best. Those libertarians. <laughs> Remember he said that? Now, I came from the hard left, Lou. What about me? You know? and, no, and there, then, there, are so, there have actually been some really great people who have come from the left. So hey, I, thanks, I, Tom. I, I, you're right. <laughs> no, no, as a matter of fact, I wrote a note about this on the Tom Woods Elite Facebook, and then a number of people I answered by saying, hey, look, I'm a libertarian who came from the left. I, I evoked a big reaction from those who came from the left. But in a way, um, there is a kind of uh, mystery in it, which is that you have to be somebody who cares about individual rights. You have to be more than somebody who just cares about, uh, you know, who's just a bleeding heart, who cares about the poor. I guess, obviously, if you care about the poor, as I've said, obviously, you have to care about capitalism. But that takes a little bit of education. You have to transcend the limits of socialist economics. But beyond that, you do have to have a fire in the belly. You do have to hate the state. And I would imagine it's a little bit more difficult for uh, people who come from the left to learn, so to speak, how to hate the state. But I mentioned school and I think back on something else. Uh, I was such, so to speak, a deluded kid that when I was enrolled in public school for quite a while, I'm sure it was like into the, at least into the second or third grade, I literally did not get what school was all about. I literally thought that school was just a place where grown-ups yelled at you and where they marched you around. I thought of it as a kind of prison, uh, literally. And I, I had a startling moment when a teacher was yelling at, uh, at us, and she then said, now I don't like to scold you. I don't like to scold you. And I was taken aback, uh, ignoramus that I was, I was taken aback, and I said, well, what else is your pay, uh, are you supposed to do? I thought scolding us was the whole point of this. Place. <laughs> and, 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 and I think that's partly because 
I know I learned how to read by just reading signs on a bus in the Bronx. You know, just I knew how to read before I started school, even though I wasn't really formally helped by my mother or brother. But I was rattling off the words and I thought, well, that's just performing. They're not really teaching me anything. And and maybe I'm, I'm not even sure about math. So, I mean, it helped that I sort of like knew the basics that school was supposed to teach me already. So I just didn't really compute for me that this is what school is all about. Now, why do I mention that? I guess because it indicates something about my objection to oppression, something about my capacity to hate the state, that I was able to feel this way. I guess it's also true about my mother. And this is perhaps a sorry commentary on her, because when I told Dave Smith about how she was victimized and how I, I have difficulty condemning people who are sympathetic to Bolshevism, communism with a capital C, in the 1950s, it's certainly true that many of your listeners could come down on me. You know, how how do you how do you not condemn these people? They were supporting if they had eyes to see, if they were the least bit interested in what's going on in the world by the 1950s, uh, they should have understood that even if you want to be a socialist, that you can't support uh, you can't support the Soviet, you can't support Joe Stalin. Uh, my mother was actually telling me that Joe Stalin was poorly understood, poorly appreciated. I even had fantasies, grandiose fantasies of meeting Joe Stalin and telling him that, you know, I understood how he was being um, uh, underappreciated. I wasn't exactly researching what was really going on in the Soviet Union. So these people were pretty deluded. You know, and and there was a wave of people who, if you know your history, Tom, when Nikita Khrushchev took over, uh, Stalin died, what, 53, and then Nikita Khrushchev rose to power. And in 1956, he delivered what was called the secret speeches, secret speech about Stalin. But of course, it was no secret at all. He roundly condemned Stalin. And that caused a number of defections from the Communist Party. But not from my mother, not from my mother, even though what I'm about to get to is that even though whenever my mother would see newsreels of communist parades of the marching in lockstep, she was appalled. She had a certain a certain sort of basic feeling for individual rights, but not enough to sort of carry her through to insights about the world. I guess it was really that she felt something or other about, you know, having lived through the 1930s, associating the failure of high unemployment and uh, and the difficulties that uh, poor people had, that the working class had in the 1930s with capitalism, and she couldn't get past that. Uh, so perhaps I've spoken enough about that part of my background, and then um, sequentially, I, I guess I've been um, over some of the, the other aspects of it, which is that by the time I was a teenager, I was sort of arguing with both sides. I would argue socialism with my father. My father was really an FDR liberal in terms of his politics, but certainly the things he said in defense of capitalism actually made some sense, even though he wasn't very good in the end in being able to defend his position. And also uh, many discussions I had with him was where he was constantly defending US foreign policy. And then my mother and her boyfriends and then a guy she married, both of whom were Stalinists. My mother, they were Stalinists, they were basically Bolsheviks. But of course they had a point about certain aspects of American imperialism. And then my mother became active with the Fair Play for Cuba 
committee. And uh, she met Fidel Castro. Uh, she went down to Cuba. But, but the one thing that she did that I by and large respect her for was she became active in the in the peace movement of the 1950s and 60s. She was brief, she was for a while, at least on the San Francisco to, to Moscow peace march against nuclear war. And I think by and large, those people had a point. Uh, when there were air raid drills in the 1950s against nuclear war, my mother and her group would commit civil disobedience and refuse to participate in the air raid drills. And I had difficulty defending their point of view, but but I could do so now. I mean, it, it might have been true up to a point that if you ducked and covered, you went under your desk or went into a basement or did something or other, maybe that would make sense if a nuclear bomb were dropped. I don't know that. But I mean, that's even less important to discuss and get into the nitty gritty of than the simple point that if, if our government is going to prepare us for nuclear war, then we should stand up and object. We should expect a little bit more from our government than to court nuclear war. And then, of course, if you learn the history of the nuclear bomb, you recognize that the U.S. government could have done a lot more in the 19, late 1940s to stop nuclear proliferation. And so, uh, so therefore, it really was a failure of government, and it really was a legitimate act of civil disobedience to hate the state for telling us, be ready for nuclear war. Perhaps you know about the history of the fallout shelters. Build a fallout. Nelson Rockefeller wanted us to build fallout shelters. John F. Kennedy even endorsed it. Get prepared for nuclear war. And that was truly ugly, because I at least to honor my mother's memory uh, for that sort of position that she took, which she continued into her old age, even though, by the way, once the Soviet Union fell, once it unraveled and her husband had died, no longer they had to defend her. Over the few years, by the time she hit her late 80s, she began to rethink her, her commitment to socialism. All right, anyway, all right, hold, I, I hold on a minute. All all right, right, Tom, Tom, I have Tom, to I, ask you some I, stuff here. Thank you, Tom, please. Yeah. All right, because <laughs> to me, the, the key thing I want to know about what it would be like growing up in a communist household, yeah. I mean, I get that, uh, you know, your mother made some arguments that maybe if she were to look at them again today, might not make them, like about Stalin and whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I guess what I want to know is, to what extent did you feel propagandized and and and... Was this like a regular basis? You'd sit at the dinner yeah. table and yeah. somebody in the family would denounce what was going on in the world? Or was it just kind of in the background and if you inquired about something, you'd get the communist answer? Well, okay, th 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 let me put your, put your answer in the crazy context of my crazy childhood. By the time I was seven years old, my father had kidnapped us and, and, and kept custody of us. Uh, we lived in Manhattan for a while and then he moved us to White Plains and then I was being raised then by my father and my stepmother, who had been who had been my aunt, who had been married to my mother's brother. And so I was living in that household and visiting my mother on weekends. She was a bit of a horror show to visit. That's another matter. But in a way, sort of that gave her an advantage, so to speak, because it, it was difficult for me in my certainly in my single digit ages and in my early teens to overcome this confusion in my mind with the fact that she had been victimized by the capitalists, that she was a communist victimized by the capitalists. And, uh, and then my, my anger 
toward my father, I guess, was confused in my mind with my attitude toward capitalists. And so I guess that's the reason why I didn't so much feel propagandized as I was being subjected to an alternative world that was of, of some interest and that it was a way to rebel against my father. Very possibly, Tom, if, now that I think about it, when you when you envision me coming to the dinner table every evening and being subjected to some lecture, then I might have rebelled against that. But I guess it was because of the odd circumstances of my of my life, of my childhood, that I only got the sermons on weekends from my mother, and then I would go back and argue with my father, and that it was confused. That's why, again, I, I guess my best excuse for the fact that I was stunted intellectually is that I was confusing all of this with my mother's battle against my father. On top of everything else, by the way, I was living a lie in White Plains. This could be interesting as a sidelight. There was so much shame. Uh, again, I, I was born in 1944, so I was 16 years old in, in 1960. Most of my childhood was spent in the 1950s. There was so much shame and embarrassment about being the child of divorced parents that I kept it a secret, as did my brother. We disappeared every weekend mysteriously to visit my mother in the Bronx. But we never explained to anybody where we were going. We were always visiting grandparents, crazy excuses. I had a stepmother and I called her Muriel by her first name. And I pretended that she was my birth mother. And the kids in the neighborhood thought I was the weirdest kid going. It was only many years later that certain crazy kids called their parents by their first names. But I was constantly getting ribbed. One kid was talking to another kid and said, what do you call your mother? And the other kid said, I call her mom. I call her mom. You know what he calls his mother? He calls his mother Muriel. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was a weirdo. And, uh, and so I kept that a secret as well. So there was so much so much craziness going on in my childhood that the uh, that the arguments between capitalism and socialism, and then of course as well, uh, where my mother shifted the argument, had to do with with the Fair Play for Cuba committee. You know the, the stupidity of, of course of the U.S. government imposing embargoes on Fidel Castro. You know, just made them turn them into the bully of the on on the block, and so there was a certain infatuation I had with that cult. You know, the cult of Castro, and so uh, so that's my excuse, Tom, and that's my answer. I didn't really feel uh, sermonized most of the time. I felt as though this was like part of the dynamic and gestalt of my crazy life, which continued into my teens. I I was a little bit more precocious than my brother. By the time I was like 17, a senior in high school, I remember telling everybody the truth and romanticizing the fact that I actually had a mother who lived in the Bronx and that she was my real mother. In fact, some of my friends came to visit her with me. Uh, and then I befriended a guy who was also came from socialist background and we would go to New York and go to socialist meetings and sort of it was our way of rebelling against the respectable world in the suburban White Plains. And so uh, so that's that's really sort of the granular dynamic of all the craziness that went on. But then once I went off to college, I was became part in my own way of the New Left movement as well as uh, reading Chomsky, as well as confronting the horror of the Vietnam War. That's when I was able to sort of get up from rise from complete depravity and sort of like become identified with the social democrats, with the democratic socialists like Michael Harrington and Irving Howe, and be caught up by Chomsky. And Chomsky, by the way, had certain bona fides, by the way, certain attitudes 
that at least are worth defining, uh, that first of all, he did not associate American imperialism with economics. He was not a part of the Marxist cult that declared that capitalism inevitably produces war. He called the Soviet Union a dungeon. He was pretty well attuned to the horrors of the Soviet Union, and, and indeed he declared that he didn't see that the Soviet Union was immune from, from uh, imperialism either. And so he was enlightened to that degree. And then, of course, where he was most refreshing is in his book of essays, American Power and the New Mandarins, where I was brought up short by his view that that he would prefer, I think I perhaps mentioned this when I discussed Chomsky on the show a while back, he said, he, he said that he would prefer that Averill Harriman run the world. Averill Harriman, he said, has a right to run the world because his grandfather uh, owned railroads. He's the capitalist elitist, and I would prefer Averill Harriman to the academic elitists, to uh, to the Henry Kissingers of this world, because they think they have a right to run the world because they're smart. He said, and I prefer Abel Harriman, he said, because if Abel Harriman is wrong about something, his grandfather still owned railroads, and he could admit that he's wrong. But if Henry Kissinger is wrong about something, or Walt Rothschild are wrong about something, then they have to admit that maybe they're not so smart. So they're going to get more and more defensive. They're going to get more difficult about admitting that they made a mistake. And so consider that sort of crossover. Somebody like Chomsky with socialist leanings is saying, I'd rather have the capitalist elite run the world than than the academicians. And so this brought me up short and by the way, prepared me, helped prepare me for my understanding and appreciation of Rothbard, my understanding of the economic mandarins in mainstream economics who want to run the world. So Chomsky called himself a libertarian socialist, and that is indeed an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms, but at least he had a strong libertarian strain to his thinking, he still does. Uh, I will, of course, freely admit that Chomsky is, uh, he's still alive, he's, uh, he's turned 90, he, he he thought that Mao's China was offering something exciting about socialism, and he was blind to a lot of what went on there. And to this day, he has not admitted the horrors of Mao Zedong's China, so that's a blot on his record. Uh, I, I wrote him a while back, uh, when the Soviet Union fell, to try to correct him on his fallacies about uh, capitalism and, and socialism, I talked about the, the controlled experiments. And I, in a, I had a huge correspondence with Chomsky, by the way, as did many people. And Chomsky inspired me to correspond with those who questioned me as well. So Chomsky wrote me, but when I asked Chomsky about the controlled experiments, North Korea versus South Korea, East Germany versus West Germany, Hong Kong and Taiwan versus mainland China before China went capitalist, uh, at least before China introduced capitalist reforms. Chomsky, to my astonishment, to my embarrassment, wrote me back that those examples were worthless, just completely tone deaf to what went on. So, uh, and, and by the way, Jeremy Hammond and I, uh, Jeremy Hammond was interested in my idea for a book called Dear Noam Chomsky, because Jeremy Hammond, who's been on your show, I know, a libertarian who, who's written a lot about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, written a very good book about it. And Jeremy was interested in my idea of writing a book called Dear Noam Chomsky, in which we talk about how he taught us a lot. 
Hammond, by the way, Hammond's book on on the Palestinian-Israeli crisis was endorsed, got a blur from Chomsky, was endorsed by Chomsky. And Hammond talked about how Chomsky's work, Faithful Triangle on the, on the Middle East crisis, inspired him. And so it's a series of letters in which we're trying to talk about how Chomsky meant something to us, but then trying to correct him on his blindness to socialism and capitalism. So I've continued, I've given you, as usual, more answer than you bargained for. Um, getting beyond, when you asked me about the indoctrination, as I said, difficult to get not to mention my crazy background, but by the time I was in my teens and 20s, you know, I I was sort of liberated from the craziness that went on between my mother and father. I read all the documents. I read the transcripts. My father my father tapped our telephone when, when I was six years old. Amazingly, he had the technology to do that. So he recorded my mother's phone conversations. In fact, I'm a, so all of these documents, and in fact, I went to the Bronx to look up court documents because Epstein versus Epstein, as the case was called, three custody trials and three divorce trials became pretty notorious in the 1950s. So I brought you up to the Chomsky part of my development, and maybe you want to plunge in and uh, shoot another other question or comment at me, Tom. So I don't want to filibuster as usual. Well, what I think we'll do is because in order sure. to keep the effort involved okay. in Gene Epstein week at a sure. reasonable level, if sure. we keep this episode going, I mean, we're already at 45 minutes. Oh my God, uh, okay. We, we, we're going to have to leave this as a cliffhanger. <laughs> okay. Let me give people a sense of what to expect this week because okay. we are going to, uh, yeah. I'm going to force Gene to get us to the point of how does he become a libertarian? We're going to yeah. get to that. But then Rothbard, we've also got Rothbard. episodes. Rothbard. Uh, right, but I mean, we got to, <laughs> right. But most people, if I could give them a book by Rothbard, they wouldn't even read it. So we sure. got to get into that. Uh, yes. But we've got uh, stuff about uh, Gene's intellectual hobby horses, things that make him crazy and, and what's wrong with some of these ideas that a lot of people believe, books that influenced him that maybe um, you folks might want to read. Stuff like that is going to occupy us over the course of Gene Epstein and, Week. So, and don't forget, don't forget, Tom, my three bits of wisdom, the wisdom I can impart to the world. The three about, bits of wisdom. You know, don't say what it is. That, that, I'm not going to. <laughs> I was going to say, the marketer in me is saying, no, no, if you say the three bits, they won't listen. No, no it's a teaser, Tom. I mean, people have got to, got to you know, when I miss those three bits. Of okay, wisdom. that's true. That's true. All right, so that's that's also coming. So, okay. so tune in for all the other episodes of, uh, of Gene Epstein Week, everybody, and thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.